Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Peoples and Things, where we explore human life with technology. I'm Lee Vinsel. If you regularly check out the podcast, you know that I am an extremely high-performing self-righteous lib. I've won several trophies at self-righteous lib competitions and once was called one of the most impressive self-righteous libs under the age of 40. The awards and accolades go on and on attesting to my intense and powerful libness. And, you know, professors in the humanities and social sciences, well, let's face it, most of us are a bunch of libs. And one thing about libs is that, by definition, we believe in the potentials of government to solve various problems. I mean, that's definitely true of me. My first book, Moving Violations, was, among other things, a defense of regulation is not impeding innovation, but often contributing to and even driving it. When we lib professors teach the history of technology— or U.S. history more generally, there's this story we like to tell about how government can improve technological outcomes. And it goes like this. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, electrical utilities were quickly building out their systems and electrifying all kinds of aspects of American society, but they were neglecting rural places because they were not seen as profitable. And it was only when Franklin Roosevelt created the Rural Electrification Administration in the New Deal that electricity finally came to rural America. It was only through the power of the state that that happened. But uh uh-oh, uh-oh, there's a problem. It appears this story has been a kind of morality tale not so rooted in historical fact. At the very least, the story is far more complicated than the standard narrative that libs like me so adore. It looks like, if we're going to be truthful, we're going to have to update our lectures. Daggone it. I hate that. This is what we learn in Powering American Farms, The Overlooked Origins of Rural Electrification by Richard Hirsch, a professor of history here at Virginia Tech. Hirsch uses extensive archival sources to show that there was a wide variety of activities around electrification in rural places well before federal involvement, including work by farmers, university researchers, and, uh-oh, even electrical utilities. This revisionist history offers many fascinating stories and interesting twists that upend much of what's been said about rural electrification. This episode is also the second of what will eventually be many interviews featuring folks here at Virginia Tech. And for that reason, we were able to record this interview in person. So you can head over to our YouTube channel at one word, people's things, no and or ampersand, and see Richard and me chatting. I also believe it's true that Richard's earlier two books on the history of electricity were the first things that my doctoral advisor, David Hounchel, had me read when I got to grad school. 
they left a big impression on me, and since then, I've taught them to many others. It's an honor to have Richard as a mentor, colleague, friend, and now Peoples and Things guest. I had a lot of fun talking to him. You'll see. Hey, get excited! Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Always a pleasure, Lee. Uh, we really should be doing this from a hot tub, though I think uh, soaking with Lee would be a different kind of show, I think. It could have wide appeal, though. It could. <laughs> so Powering American Farms is a neat book. Uh, when you explain it to strangers, uh, what do you say it's about, and what were you trying to do with it? Powering American Farms is, is a revisionist history of rural electrification in the United States. Uh, it does not tell the standard story of rural electrification. That standard story is that during the Depression, Franklin Roosevelt set up the Rural Electrification Administration, the REA, in 1935. And because of the activities of that organization, farmers who had been previously neglected by private electric utility companies finally got a chance to get wired up. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, uh, when I did research about that topic, uh, I found that no, there was quite a bit of utility company work being done on rural electrification in the 1920s and into the 1930s. And it was quite substantial and it contradicted the standard history of mm -hmm. rural electrification. And that's basically what I was writing about. Uh, the, again, the standard history is very well known. There are famous historians who have written about the New Deal and have written wonderful things about how FDR brought electricity to these beleaguered and forgotten mm -hmm. farmers. And it turns out that's not the complete story. There's a lot of nuance involved there. Right on. And we will look into all kinds of elements of that. This is a, it's a very pretty book. Mm. So it's got this uh, neat image on the front with this red-winged blackbird. Mm -hmm. uh, where, where, where'd this come from? That uh, cover is, is certainly not original. That cover comes from uh, the, that's actually the cover of a, a utility-related report written in 1924 hmm. by a group of agricultural engineers and utility people in Minnesota. And they put together one of the first experiments on rural electrification to see what farmers would use electricity for, how much electricity they would use, um, whether electricity service to farmers could be profitable to both farmers and to utility companies. Uh, and this report uh, from this group in 1924 had that beautiful cover on it. Uh, the, the, you, that's a red wing blackbird. Yeah. And the report was done about uh, people who used electricity on farms in Red Wing, Minnesota. Oh, I see. So there's a little play there. I think there is. I can't. Like, yeah. that's that's my take of it. Yeah. yeah. And then you have a, a section in the center with uh, these wonderful colored plates. Yes. You have a real you have a real eye. I didn't know this about you as a historian. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, 
The, all of the images you pulled out are really nice. Some it is people. an image-rich, rich story. Yeah. It really is. And there were some great photographs there uh, for people who are writing books. You have to be aware, though, that uh, publishers don't like to publish no, they don't like to uh, do color anymore. pictures because <laughs> yeah. they're expensive. Yeah. I ended up having to put some money into the production well, of the book. I'm glad you did. Yeah, they're, they're, they're fun pictures. They're very nice images. So you, this is not the first book you've written about electricity. You wrote Correct. two other books on electricity. Two other books and one very related book, my first one dealing with high energy astrophysics done from outer space, uh -huh. which has nothing to do with electricity. Oh yeah, then I'm you just, became electric, a historian of electricity. I did, yes. And what were the other two books about? And just okay. to give listeners a general yeah. sense of your okay. career. So the first um, electricity book was called Technology and Transformation in the mm -hmm. American Electric Utility Industry. Um, it is a book about the, uh, the changes in technology and management of the technology in the utility industry from around, well, the beginning of the industry until the 1970s or so. And it was, uh, the industry did amazingly good work in terms of incrementally improving technologies mm -hmm. that enabled companies to make electricity in larger quantities and at lower cost. Mm -hmm. And you see from the beginning of the 20th century to about 1970 that the cost and price of electricity dropped by like 98%. Yeah. Okay, that's amazing. Yeah. And America became a country dependent on electricity uh, and lots of it. But starting in the 1970s, there are a whole bunch of problems that the industry did not manage terribly well at first. Um, you had the oil embargo and energy prices going up. But worse than that, and what most people who looked at this era uh, didn't realize was that the improvement in the technology did not continue to mm -hmm. occur. So I wrote about the management culture and some of the management problems there. So it's not just a hardware story. It's uh, more of an STS-ish historical story looking at uh, uh, people's attitudes, their mm -hmm. cultures, the way they learn things and so on. Mm -hmm. The second electricity book is called Power Loss. And if I remember the subtitle right, it was, um, what was it? It was uh, Power Loss, the uh, uh, restructuring and, de I'm sorry, deregulation and restructuring of the American utility system. It sort of picks up the story in the 1970s and deals with uh, how utility, the utility industry dealt with many of these problems, in particular how it started moving toward energy efficiency and conservation measures, which are very different. Uh, how regulation uh, did not seem to be able to help the industry overcome many of the problems of the 70s, and how the deregulation movement took hold in the 1990s, resulting in the state of California, for example, being the first one to largely deregulate elements of its utility system, mm -hmm. uh, but not very successfully. Mm -hmm. uh, so that there were lots of problems in the early 2000s with deregulation, and many states that had started experiments with deregulation gave up on those experiments and went back to more traditional regulation. So uh, those are the two electricity books. Yeah. This book, uh, Powering American Farms, is one that I had no intention of ever writing. 
uh, uh -huh. and it was something that just came about as an accident. Yeah. And well, go on. I mean, that was actually yeah. what I was going to ask you next. Oh, kind of okay. like how you got onto this. So. Um, in about 2011 or so, I was asked by Alan Marcus, who is a historian of technology, uh, to write a chapter on electrical engineering at land-grant colleges hmm. in anticipation of the 2012 150th anniversary of the Land-Grant Act, mm -hmm. 1862, uh, was the act created universities like Virginia Tech uh, and, and so many others. So many others. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So uh, he wanted me, to, he asked me because he knew I did work on history of electricity that I might want to write a chapter in this book that he was putting together in mm -hmm. a conference. So I started doing research on that thinking, oh, I'll just document uh, what happened at Virginia Tech in the 1880s and 90s, how electrical engineering got going at this land-grant college and then expand from there. Uh, and I did that, but in the process of spending time in the archives here in this Newman mm -hmm. Library, and few hundred feet from where we are now, I discovered all these documents uh, from people who were not electrical engineers, but who were uh, agricultural engineers and who were doing work on electrification and rural electrification starting in the 1920s or so. Mm -hmm. And one of the big names was Charles Seitz. We have a Seitz Hall on campus. And uh, it, it was just amazing. What, why, why are these guys doing rural electrification work 10, 15 years before the Rural Electrification Administration yeah. existed? It just didn't fit into my understanding of the history of rural electrification, which I had actually been interested in from my readings in college about mm -hmm. how wonderful the REA was. And yeah. you know, I read you know, the standard histories and all that stuff. Anyway, uh, so I started pursuing that work and discovered that uh, agricultural engineers at about half of the state's land-grant colleges were doing work on rural electrification sponsored by the utility Industries Trade Organization, okay. the National Electric Lighting Association, mm -hmm. Light Association. Uh, and uh, they were funding these ag engineers uh, in coordination with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the American Farm Bureau Federation, a bunch of agricultural organizations that were also providing support and individual utilities uh -huh. in these states. So sites, uh, for example, was doing work in the state uh, trying to figure out how electricity could be beneficial to farmers and how utility companies might be interested in serving more farmers. The big problem, the fundamental problem here was that to string lines to farmers who lived in sparsely settled communities um, was very expensive. Yeah. Um, a distribution line at the time would cost maybe $1,500 or $2,000 per mile, which was significant back then. And there'd be one or two customers or three customers yeah. versus that same line in a city that could serve uh, 500 to 1,000 customers. Mm -hmm. So there were much greater economies and much greater potential for making profits to companies that served city, uh, city residents, urban residents, rather than rural residents. Mm -hmm. But if, if farmers could be shown to be profitable customers, 
then by all means, companies would be interested mm -hmm. in them, perhaps. So there were these experiments going on all around the country uh, dealing with how farmers could use electricity. And while today we think it's obvious, right? Everyone wants electricity. Yeah, no. uh, of course, it, it's kind of obvious. It wasn't so obvious yeah. back then. Um, it, everyone wanted electric lights, that was clear. But to have a few electric lights in a house would not produce enough or not demand enough electricity for power companies to make money. Yeah. So if the power companies could help farmers come up with new ways to use electricity, then serving them would be profitable. Hmm. So uh, there were all these experiments being done. Uh, Charles Seitz ran one of the experiments dealing with uh, an experiment that uh, electrified and illuminated hen houses, okay? So there'd be a hen house that would be split into a hen house is a house that houses hens. <laughs> An amazing, <laughs> that's a technical term, Lee. I hope, I hope you understood that. Uh, it, you got that, that really helped. Okay. That really helped. So he split the, the hen house in two. It was normally illuminated by sunlight, and that's it, right? Uh -huh. So at the end of the day, no sunlight. Uh, the chickens would just yeah, yeah. be in darkness. Okay. He found that uh, if you illuminate the hen houses with electric lights, the chickens will produce a lot more eggs. Hmm. And in just one season, you could produce enough eggs to make enough money to pay for wiring the farm. Wow. Wiring the barn, yeah. rather, the hen house itself. Huh. Okay. Uh, so, you know, this is something that wasn't obvious, but here he did this experiment and mm -hmm. used, you know, he had graduate students who were doing all their um, uh, economic analyses and all and demonstrated, yeah, this was, uh, this was pretty cool, you could do that. Uh, and then there were other things you could use electricity for, different types of motors, mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and uh, a whole bunch of different processes on, on a farm that previously perhaps used steam engines or human power. Uh, shelling of peas, for example, turned out to be really a good thing for using electric motors. Uh, and there was for. also like wild experiments, things we would not think of today that you found, like putting electricity into the ground to help plants grow. And... That's right. Uh, there were, it, again, it seems like electricity would be naturally desired by farmers, you know, it was obvious. But there were people who were also saying, well, you know, if you, we can stimulate plant growth with, by sticking electrodes in the ground. Yeah. Well, uh, it turns out that wasn't the case mm -hmm. as, as much as people had hoped. Um, there were people who were saying, there were advocates of, of, of using overhead lines to then bring electricity to electric uh, plows, for example. Uh, in principle, that makes a lot of sense. Electric motors are very simple motors, very mm -hmm. rugged. Uh, but it turns out that when people did experiments with these, they did not work well. Okay. Moreover, there was competition coming in in the 19-teens and 20s, namely gasoline-powered tractors, yeah. which turned out to be much cheaper and much more versatile. And of course, not everyone has electric lines going over, right. their, over their farms. Yeah. Okay. So that didn't turn out to be something that worked out as people may have expected. Mm -hmm. Electric refrigeration. Everyone wants electric refrigeration. But in the 1920s, uh, electric refrigerators were extremely expensive and really dangerous. Uh, they used refrigerants like ammonia, 
And if the ammonia leaked from one of the mm -hmm. pipes in the refrigerators, people literally died, mm -hmm. okay? So things that today we think are just obvious mm -hmm. were not so obvious uh, yeah. back then. It wasn't until the 1930s when General Motors came out with Freon that, uh, that, that refrigerators started to catch on hmm. for domestic use. Uh, and that gets into the REA period, to be sure. Mm -hmm. And that was a great builder of load. But it wasn't 100% obvious mm -hmm. that farmers would use a lot of electricity, where yeah. they would use it for anything beyond electric lights. And therefore, these uh, experiments being done by the land-grant agricultural engineers helped demonstrate that, yes, there were a whole bunch of uses mm -hmm. um, that that, that made sense to the farmers and to the utility companies. Farmers used to complain. There are stories of farmers who complained about paying $5 a month for electricity for the few lights they had in the house. But they didn't mind paying $15 a month when they had all this productivity enhancing equipment mm -hmm. that yielded much more than the difference in, in price, than the extra uh, uh, amount of money they had to sure. pay for the electricity. But the, again, it wasn't totally obvious. And, and this is one of the things I, I try to emphasize in the book is that from today's perspective, we think that people in the past wanted electricity. Yeah. It was obvious they wanted electricity. Yeah, yeah. But that's look doing history from the present to the past, not from the past to the present. In the 1920s, uh, yes, electricity was one of the modern, modern marvels that people wanted to be sure, but there were lots of other things going on too. Uh, farmers in the 20s wanted um, good roads to get their goods to market. Yeah. Uh, they wanted telephones, automobiles, tractors. Mm -hmm. uh, all these things were coming in pretty much at the same time. Mm -hmm. And electricity actually was not at the top of the list. Mm -hmm. Even though today we think, well, you know, the National Academy of Engineers in 2000 noted that electricity was the top new technology of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. We know that now. Right. right. But back then, not especially so among farmers, it was not yet obvious. Mm -hmm. So what, yeah. kind of, what kind of research did you do for this book? Yeah, it was uh, research that I didn't have to do with my previous books. So my other books on electricity and even my book on uh, X-ray astronomy, I interviewed lots and lots of people. Mm -hmm. It's hard to interview people from more than 100 years ago, obviously. Mm -hmm. So I did a lot of archival research mm -hmm. at, at uh, land-grant universities around the country, obviously Virginia Tech, but also uh, Auburn University, University of North Carolina, University of Vermont, um, a couple of universities in California, Idaho, Washington, um, a few others I missed, mm -hmm. but lots of archival research where I found uh, some delightful documents, often handwritten documents uh, from the ag engineers, but also because at, at land-grant universities you have the extension services right. of, of the state. Mm -hmm. uh, you had, I, I found these wonderful tell letters. Tell people what extension is, just so mm -hmm. in case they don't know. Okay, so first of all, land-grant schools were created using funds from the sale of land, federal lands 
out west largely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those that money went to the states and the states created these universities or colleges that were focused on agricultural pursuits and mechanical or engineering pursuits. Mm-hmm. So you have universities like Texas A&M, agriculture and mechanical. Virginia Tech used to be called Virginia Agricultural and Mechanical mm. uh, College, VAMC, okay? So, um, great. Uh, so you have these schools that were devoted to work and teaching middle class and lower class people, largely non-elite students, mm-hmm. uh, teaching them about agriculture, modern agriculture and, and engineering. At these colleges, the states also created uh, or integrated these extension services. So the extension service takes the knowledge that is produced at universities and brings it to individual farmers. So they're extension agents in every county of Mm -hmm. every state and the agent's jobs, uh, the agent's job rather is to bring the new knowledge Mm -hmm. to, to the farmers technically. So you had all these extension agents who would then be bringing information to farmers. Uh, And in the 1920s, you had, again, these land-grant colleges and the ag engineers um, developing this new knowledge. They also uh, would disseminate the knowledge with the extension agents by having conferences on campus to teach about rural electrification, Mm -hmm. to teach about new uses for electricity, to teach uh, women how to use electric ovens and electric stoves, Mm -hmm. uh, to teach people how to even use just electric lights and how to wire one's house efficiently and without spending a huge amount of money. So you have this other uh, institution related to the land-grant colleges that that helps spread Uh, rural electrification. And of course, the land-grant colleges were teaching students ag engineering and teaching new methods and new techniques in rural electrification technologies. Uh, Many of the students from here, for example, went to work for utility companies and then worked in what became these uh, rural, um, these uh, farm divisions of electric utility companies. And the fact that so many of these companies created these rural divisions Mm -hmm. with trained rural electrification agents Mm -hmm. suggests that no, the utility companies did not necessarily totally ignore the farmers. I was going to ask you how much the utility companies paid you to, uh, yeah. you know, write this hymn to their beneficence. You're right. You're right. Okay. <laughs> and, and you can tell, by the way, I'm dressed, for example, yes. that they paid me a huge amount of money uh, to, uh, to, to dispel the traditional propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, in the book, I make a point of saying, you know, I'm not a shill for the utility industry. Yes, I saw uh, that. <laughs> because it, it could be viewed as uh, yeah. that. However, I should also point out that in the book, I do note that, you know, many of the motives of the utility companies were not necessarily pure, mm-hmm. right? They were trying to dispel some very bad propaganda. Uh, I'm sorry, very bad uh, public relations mm-hmm. uh, that were going on in uh, that that occurred in the 1920s as well. 
And mm -hmm. uh, especially after 1928, before the stock market crash and the Great Depression really started, uh, the utility industry was suffering some bad press mm -hmm. because the Federal Trade Commission started an, an investigation of the utility industry and found that the industry had been spending millions of dollars uh, to pay off university professors to say nice things about the utility industry, wow. uh, to pay off regulators, to pay off um, uh, re I'm sorry, regulators mm -hmm. um, and, and uh, others who were making the utility industry perhaps look better than mm -hmm. it should have. So the industry was, you know, indus some industry leaders were looking at rural electrification efforts as a way to try to counter some of the bad press mm -hmm. that uh, the industry was getting. What, and why do you think that message worked? Or I mean, why would they think that message would work? Are, are they bringing modernity to these people or what is it? Well, that's, of, of city folk were exposed to electricity first. And mm -hmm. indeed, electricity did bring many of the elements of modernity, mm -hmm. right? You have electric lights, you have electric entertainment, electric cooking, electric heating, electric cooling in, in big spaces. Mm -hmm. um, indeed, electricity was a, a modern mm -hmm. marvel. Um, and city folk in particular thought that the farmers were you know, backwards, they right. were hay seeds and all. Um, so to be sure, one element of this was to, uh, I'm sorry, one element um, I would imagine that utility managers thought of was, oh, look, you know, we're, we're helping the farmers. Mm -hmm. We're bringing modernity to the farm. And you can read, uh, you can read nice stories about how uh, in farm magazines, for example, and even utility uh, magazines about how um, the farm was becoming modern with Electric, electric lights and electricity, and that the smartest people who grew up on farms would go to a land-grant college, get a degree, and then never come back to the farm yeah. because they had seen the big city, they had gotten educated, they wouldn't want to come back to the farm. Mm -hmm. But with electricity on the farm, people would be willing to stay there. Mm. And there was this great movie made by the, uh, this Minnesota group that did rural electrification experiments, uh, a movie which uh, you, can, you, can, you can actually find online mm -hmm. now. I, can you get it online? I have a, a digital version of it that mm -hmm. came from the University of, uh, of Minnesota. Uh, and it shows, among other things, uh, a scene in which this uh, city man, I'm sorry, this farmer male brings home to the farm his new city bride. She lived in the city. He brings her back to the farm. He shows her all the modern conveniences in, an, in his electrified uh, house and the electrified wow. barn, and she's just thrilled. And there's you know, a pretty <laughs> risque scene in there in which she's sitting on his lap and gives him a little kiss, and then it becomes a, 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 a more serious kiss, and it sort of fades out there. Thankfully, so it's the, like the opposite of Green Acres. Then is what you're saying. Um, like she's in, happy on the farm. She is very happy on the yeah. farm. Yes, <laughs> and Green Acres is another, um, to be sure, an, another historical um, documentary. I think, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, that deals with uh, life on the farm that's from right. a different perspective. Yes. Yeah.
So um, we talked, I just want to go back to one thing really quick and make sure we hit this. The, um, the standard narrative that you're, that you're revising mm -hmm. through your account, which is that the utilities neglected farms until the New Deal, mm -hmm. basically, right? And right. government sweeps in and yes. uh, benefits these folks. Where does that story come from? Yeah, it's, well, okay. Here's another case in which if you look from the present to the past, it seems like that story makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. In 1923, there were like 177,000 farms that had electricity. That's about um, two, two and a half percent of the six million farms. Mm -hmm. So yeah, not many farms. Um, throughout the 1920s, with all this work being done by utility people, uh, ag agricultural engineers and others, that number went up to uh, about uh, eight or 9%, 10% by around 1929. Uh, and in fact, if you look at the growth rate, it's something like 21% per year on average, which is a pretty That's good- a high growth rate. That yeah. is a high growth rate. Of, to be sure, it starts from a low level. Right. But if you continued like that during the, uh, the roaring 20s, uh, then you would have gotten every farm electrified by the 1940s mm -hmm. without government help, okay? Of course, you had the Depression mm -hmm. intervene and lots of other problems, obviously. Okay, so you go from 2.3% to about 9%. You're, you're, you're quadrupling the numbers of, of farmers in mm -hmm. this period. Um, and from the 1923 perspective, quadrupling by 1933s is pretty good, but you're still only at about 10 or 11 percent. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, the, so again, it, it it doesn't look great from the present mm -hmm. because you also know that from 1935 to 1950 you go from you know 11, 12 percent to 85 percent. Right. Okay. So that's a huge increase. Right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so where did this story come from and, and why was it so appealing? Uh, you had people within the REA, to be sure, who were pushing this. This is the Rural Electrification Administration. That's right. Yeah. So you had the first administrator, Morris Cook, who kept pushing this notion that the farmers had been neglected by the utility mm -hmm. companies. Uh, and it made a lot of sense to do that because Cook and the REA was trying to get resources from Congress mm -hmm. uh, to lend money to farmers groups that would then wire up uh, communities mm -hmm. and bring electricity to them from the central power stations and from other sources. Uh, and all that was, was very nice. Uh, it was also a very appealing story in part because starting in 1928, the electric utility industry was getting such a bad rap. I already mentioned the Federal Trade Commission hearings, uh, but beyond that, uh, when the stock market crashed in 1929, it took down a lot of utility companies and utility holding company organizations. Mm -hmm. And um, while there were holding companies used in several other industries in the utility industry, it was used to leverage profits for people who, had, who owned stock in the holding companies. Um, the holding companies own stock of operating companies, uh, and there were 
ways at the time when you could leverage profit. So when the individual utility company made money, well, the higher up, the pyramided holding companies could make even more mm -hmm. money. The problem was when they stopped making that money, when the depression hit, when industrial activity declined and sales of electricity dropped, mm -hmm. um, the utility companies lost money, but the holding companies that were Leverage, uh, that were leveraging uh, the, the assets uh, were, then ended up losing huge amounts of money. Mm. And in fact, many of these holding companies went bankrupt, including uh, some companies run by Samuel Insull, who was the head of, uh, of, of uh, a few of these holding companies and who had done amazing things to build up the utility industry to what it was. But the uh, stock market crash then accelerated the uh, problems with utility companies and holding companies and people who had invested, including widows and orphans, a term mm -hmm. that was used even back then, uh, people who had bought stock in these utility companies and holding companies thinking they were uh, safe and solid investments investments that were protected by regulation, mm -hmm. state regulation. When these companies collapsed and people lost everything, mm -hmm. they started blaming uh, the utility industry. So the utility industry had a, another dose of really bad news, mm -hmm. to be sure. And President Roosevelt took aim at the utility industry uh, such that during the New Deal, there were a bunch of new uh, laws passed to restructure the utility industry to prevent the types of abuses that occurred in the 1920s leading up to the depression. Mm -hmm. So the utility industry was already in the doghouse. Mm -hmm. And then to, you know, for, uh, then Morris Cook and supporters of the REA would say, look, you know, the, not only did they bankrupt mm -hmm. so many American investors, um, the utility industry also has been neglecting a, a part of society that we depend on, the farmers. Right. So it was really a very clever way to enhance the image of the REA. And lots of other people picked up on this. And think indeed, historians just kind of internalized this narrative? There, well, first of all, there weren't a lot of historians who wrote about uh, yeah. the REA, but uh, those who did, uh, picked up on this traditional narrative. So you had people like um, uh, Arthur Schlesinger and William Luchtenberg who wrote these, uh, f these volumes about the New Deal mm -hmm. in the 1950s and 60s. And they didn't write a lot about the REA, but they picked up on that narrative. Yeah. Uh, because it's a great narrative in which uh, it's a great narrative that shows the importance of the federal government during an amazingly difficult time yeah. in American history. And much of that narrative, I still accept right. that the federal government probably saved capitalism in America yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. and the New Deal did some amazing things. And I don't disparage what the, yeah. uh, what the REA did, but when people write about and talk about how, you know, 1950, 85, 86% of farms had electricity uh, and that's because of the REA. What they don't point out is that half of the farms that had electricity, half of those 86% of those farms actually served by 
utility companies, yeah. not by the REA. And it was only in 1950 or so that the REA had wired up more farms that the, than the utility industry. Yeah. And when the uh, rural electrification rate hit like 98% at the end of the 19, um, uh, 1950s, 1960 or so, um, electric utility companies had still wired up uh, you know, 45, 46% of those farms. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I, I explain in the, in the book why the utility industry accelerated its yeah. work you mean in the 19. You make an 30s. argument in those later chapters that it's in part like a response to yes. the government action, right? Oh, yes. Oh, definitely the utility industry responded to this massive effort that the REA was picking up on. Mm -hmm. In part, be, uh, so one way to look at that is that by the 1930s, the utility industry and its partners at land-grant colleges and elsewhere had done good work mm -hmm. and had demonstrated to farmers that electricity could really uh, prove profitable to them right. and to utility companies themselves yeah. as well. And uh, out in California, just as an aside, the Californians were way ahead of everyone in California, Washington state, uh, Idaho, uh, Utah, states that depended on irrigation for farming. Yeah. And starting in the early 20th century, 1900s, 19 knots, uh, farmers in those states found that electrically operated irrigation pumps were so much better than other types of ways to pump water into irrigation canals. Yeah. And they started using electricity galore, such that by 1930, 60% about uh, farmers in California had, had electricity. Wow. Okay. So this is before the REA. In Utah, 50 some percent. Mm. Uh, people were using electricity and in such large quantities that the electric companies were thrilled to wire Elect, uh, wa put wires, uh, send wires to these farms. And then of course, people use the electricity, not just for irrigation pumps, but for lighting and motors. The and home's an stuff. afterthought after that though. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, irrigation was the driving force. Yeah. Okay, so, um, so it was clear by the 1930s because of work done in California, out west, I should say, and because of this work done in the 1920s or so, that utility officials were becoming more confident that uh, farmers could use electricity in sufficient quantities that yeah. they would be able to make money from them. Should also point out that um, the other markets for electricity were getting somewhat saturated. Mm -hmm. So by the 1920s, industry was uh, mo I'm sorry, utility companies had gotten much of the industrial customers out right. there. And then uh, in the 1920s into the 30s, uh, they were getting most of the city residential customers. Mm -hmm. In 1920, something like 40% of people in cities had electricity. So, and, and they were more, going to be more profitable than the uh, farmers, so work on the farmer, I'm sorry, the yeah. city folk first. Okay, by the end of the 20s, a good majority of the city residents had been mm -hmm. wired up. 
Okay, so the next step is perhaps going to the farm market, which was looking like it was going to be better. And the utility officials likely saw that if they did not jump in and go for the farm market in the 30s, the REA would come and take them mm -hmm. all. So um, it was, uh, according to some accounts that I read, uh, a concerted effort to go in now or never go in. They, previously, the, the utility officials could say, well, you know, we can wait for the farm market to develop, mm -hmm. uh, but not with the REA serving as competition there. Mm -hmm. So they, they jumped in and grabbed by 1950 about half the, the farm market, mm -hmm. and then the REA picked up more afterwards. There's a, it sounds like a kind of a classic technology adoption story where you have like, you know, there's these charts, you have like these slow adoption mm, curves, and then right. you have this period of rapid yes. um, adoption. And part of that story, you know, if you look at like yeah. classic, like Rogers Diffusion of Innovations mm. book and stuff like that, is that, you know, early on, people aren't very sure if this thing's going to work out. Right. You know, there's a lot of bugs, like, mm -hmm. do I really need this thing? Then knowledge spreads of like, actually, it's helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, there's all these uses. Yeah. And it really sounds like things were kind of primed for a takeoff by this point. By the 1930s, I think you're right. Yeah. And even private utilities, again, working with these agricultural engineers, uh, discovered that once customers got electricity, even just for a few appliances, uh, they then started growing or increasing their consumption of electricity. Yeah. Okay, we have lights and we have irrigation. Oh, you know, that toaster is pretty neat. Yeah. That radio is yeah. pretty neat. Uh, the, uh, a vacuum cleaner, gee, yeah. that's pretty neat. Uh, so people, once they got electricity, started using more of it. Uh, now, certainly the Tennessee Valley Authority and the Rural Electrification Administration had demonstrated uh, similar things in the 1930s and much more dramatically, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, but the utility people were realizing that, yeah, once people got electricity, they started using it more. Yeah. Um, you have this chapter uh, titled Momentum in the Rural Electrification Subsystem. Yes. And so uh, you're drawing on Thomas Hughes' concept of momentum here. Yeah, how about that? And so uh, I was hoping you'd explain that. And, and is, this, is it connected to what we're talking to right now? Is that what you're seeing there? Yeah, of course. Um, so Thomas Hughes wrote this wonderful book in 1982, Networks of Power, in which he uh, described the, the systems approach in history of technology. Mm -hmm. And he pointed out that systems of technologies develop, not just because of great engineering and technology, but because of the support from lots of different players. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have companies, you have educational institutions, you have financial institutions. Uh, it's a so socio-technical system, not just a technical system like one would learn about in an engineering course, mm -hmm. engineering systems. Okay, uh, so in the... Uh, in rural electrification, you had a, a subsystem, I argue. Uh, it was sort of like the overall utility system, which was by the 1920s fairly well developed. You had uh, the standard technologies, the, the steam turbines, the generators. Uh, these technologies were developed early in the 20th century. Uh, and you had the financial institutions that were feeding money into this capital-intensive utility uh, industry. Uh, you had universities that were producing these electrical engineers 
for the utility system. And uh, I, I like the system's approach. It's, it's a very flexible approach. Uh, and, and it helps one understand, I think, pretty explicitly that technical systems are not just technical, they're social as well. Great. But when I look at rural electrification, I saw, when I, when I looked at it, I saw, well, this is sort of a subsystem. Mm -hmm. You have many of the same people involved in this utility system, in this, in this subsystem of rural electrification, uh, but they're, they're a little different. So instead of having the electrical engineers in the rural electrification uh, subsystem playing big roles, mm -hmm. instead you have the agricultural engineers, mm -hmm. okay? And, uh, and, and with the development of the rural electrification, uh, I'm sorry, REA, Rural Electrification Administration in the mm -hmm. 1930s, you have uh, an organization that is providing financial support for rural electrification in a way that the uh, the utility system had not uh, had, a, had had financial support previously. Mm -hmm. uh, so the REA jumps in and actually modifies this subsystem, which the utility managers thought would be their own, right? Mm -hmm. Just like the the large bulk of electricity is in this country back then and even today is produced by private electric companies. Yeah. Uh, those same companies thought eventually, you know, they'll, they'll wire up all the farms, it'll be theirs, nothing to worry about. But uh, it turned out that these new players, the Rural Electrification Administration, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the Electric um, Home and Farm Administration, uh, these new players intervened in a way that that enabled these outsiders to have more control over the rural electrification subsystem than did the traditional mm -hmm. electric utility managers. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a, a little, a nice play there, I thought. Yeah. Uh, a, a way to use that syst systems approach to help understand more about the rural electrification system uh, or subsystem and why it, it, why the utility managers lost control mm -hmm. over that system, a system, subsystem they thought they would naturally mm -hmm. control forever. No, I had the momentum piece to that. The momentum piece. Thank you very much for bringing me back. You're a good interviewer. You know, <laughs> you know how to bring people back uh, to the topic. Well, in the 1920s, I argue, the momentum increased because you had a bunch of these different players, different actors getting into the into the show. So you had the... You, well, before, you, sorry, the Hughes, what, I mean, what is momentum in Hughes' picture? Like, what is happening in the system at that point? Um, well, in physics, momentum is mass times velocity. Uh -huh. uh, and it's a vector quantity. So going in a certain direction. Okay. Um, so you have a lot of, of, of capital, mm -hmm. a, a lot of people who are educated to work within an existing technical system. Mm -hmm. So, you, uh, so the, the, the utility system that Hughes writes about uh, includes these electrical engineers who are making incremental improvements in steam turbines, in generators, in transmission technologies, uh, and you have uh, the financial institutions pouring in millions of dollars to support all this. Uh, you have financial institutions, educational institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you have 
uh, a culture developing as well uh, of people who want electricity and who like the system that exists. You have regulators that are uh, regulatory institutions in almost every state that is enabling the utility companies to act as regional monopolies mm -hmm. and assuring that they earn enough money to pay off their investors and to build uh, and upgrade equipment mm -hmm. in their system. So I have all these different elements, social, technical, political, you know, I didn't really talk about the politicians who are supporting the utility industry as well, the regulators. Uh, you have all these different elements that are supporting the utility system and the way it looked like it was going, mm -hmm. in which everyone in the country would ultimately have wires stringing from power plants, mm -hmm. coal burning power plants or hydroelectric power plants with wires going everywhere, crisscrossing the landscape, going into every home and mm -hmm. farm in the country. And that was the, um, you had all these elements that were building momentum mm -hmm. uh, to yield this positive result mm -hmm. of electrification for everyone uh, at lower and lower cost. Mm -hmm. So the momentum in the, in the rural electrification subsystem mm -hmm. consisted of more than just these agricultural engineers who were doing this research. You had at utility companies these uh, rural electrification agents that were being hired in larger and larger numbers. Mm -hmm. You had regulators who were simplifying the way that farmers could get electricity. Before the 19, mid-1920s, if a farmer wanted electricity, uh, the farmer would go to the utility company and say, I want electricity. Mm -hmm. And there would be sort of a one-on-one -on -one ad hoc basis for the I utility see. to mm -hmm. serve the farmer. And it often was very expensive. And very often, the utility companies required the farmers to put up the money upfront uh, to pay for the distribution line to their farms, mm -hmm. which was very expensive. Yeah. Um, in the 1920s, you had regulators uh, that started uh, that that were responding to other pressures uh, and saying, you know, this is going to this type of approach will stymie rural electrification. Why not do some experiments? And um, in in several states, uh, farmers would put up a portion of the money every year. Uh, over a 10 year period to pay back the utility company. Mm -hmm. And if the utility company actually made more money than it needed, it would refund some of the money. So in various states, you had regulatory reforms going on that made it easier for farmers to get electricity. Uh, you also had in many states uh, the, and many utility company areas, uh, utilities would have these demonstrations, the, these um, uh, fairs, uh, at, at agricultural fairs, yeah. they would demonstrate electrical equipment and try and get farmers interested mm -hmm. in electricity. Uh, at universities like Virginia Tech, uh, there were these uh, agricultural engineering uh, uh, short courses. Short courses, thank yeah. you, Lee. Short <laughs> courses to teach utility people and to teach farmers and anyone interested uh, totally how to expand the use of electricity. So when I talk about momentum, yeah. I'm talking about how you have a, a bunch of 
different elements all moving in the same direction to spur rural electrification. Mm -hmm. The ag engineers, the companies with their rural farm, uh, their farm division uh, representatives, um, and and and, and uh, you know, the demonstrations, the short courses, yeah, uh, and and all these students who are being produced. Uh, at universities to do work in rural electrification, regulation, all that. Mm. I'm repeating myself, but no. you, you get the idea. Yeah. Uh, in the 1930s, of course, you have these new players. You have the federal government through uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority in 1933 first, uh, and then the Rural Electrification Administration in 1935. Um, and, and these organizations are upending the traditional relationship a 10-year relationship or so between utility companies and some farmers, mm -hmm. not all farmers. And one should point out that it, even in the 19, early 1930s, mm -hmm. most utility people were still a bit leery of rural electrification. Sure. It just wasn't going to be as profitable as other segments could be. Yeah. But there was this undercurrent movement. Uh, there were people within the utility industry, I highlight a guy named Grover Neff from Wisconsin, uh, who uh, seemed to be genuine in his concern for rural electrification. Mm -hmm. uh, and he did a lot to convince some of his counterparts in the industry to pursue rural electrification. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, we, uh, the, 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 but, to be sure, the feds changed a lot yeah. uh, in the 1930s. Well, I wanted to, you know, one of the last questions I want to ask you is just, you know, some historians don't like counterfactuals, right? Yeah. I mean, so counterfactuals mm. are kind of imaginary scenarios where yes. things had gone otherwise. Right. And there's a, you know, a lot of historians do not like doing that for yes. good reasons, I think. Though I right. think there's also good reasons to run them now and yeah. then. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, like, if you're doing a kind of counterfactual on this, absent, it's clear that government action did a lot, Yes. right? Um, including spurring, the, spurring on the firms via competition. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, do you think absent uh, government regulation, we would have seen, continue to see that kind of growth curve laid out well, that there were, you described there were, earlier? Um, it's hard to say. Yeah, it's hard to say. Because even you know, absent federal intervention, there were still lots of farmers, especially farmers who didn't own their own land, tenant farmers, mm -hmm. and especially in the South, who would not have been great customers mm -hmm. because they didn't own their own land. Yeah. Uh, the owners wouldn't want to invest in electrical equipment for their farm. It yeah, still yeah, would yeah. have been- Well, there was lots of racial dimensions there oh, in the absolutely. South. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Especially in the South yeah. with a huge number of, of black farmers as tenant farmers. Right. Okay. Uh, but, um, I do use counterfactuals in, mm -hmm. in my book uh, because I point out that there were other approaches that could have been taken to yield more rural electrification. So I point out that in the 19-teens, 20s, uh, and into the 30s, uh, farmers who could not get wires strung to them uh, in some cases, yeah. they actually bought equipment to generate electricity themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there was some, a company called Delco uh, Lighting Company, which was mm -hmm. ultimately a subsidiary of General Motors. Mm -hmm. And Delco Light made this self-contained internal combustion unit that produced electricity with a generator. Mm -hmm. The electricity went into batteries like 
uh, car batteries. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you could light up your house and use equipment and all using the electricity that was self-generated. Yeah. This device was amazing in many ways because when the batteries got discharged, before they got totally discharged, they would start the internal combustion engine up again and start producing electricity that would recharge the batteries. Clever. It was very clever. Um, and there were other companies that did this too, but Delco Light became the, the, big, mm -hmm. uh, the, the biggest player here. Uh, and what that suggests, number one, is that farmers were not these you know, unknowledgeable, technically stupid people. Yeah, there yeah. was a segment of these farmers uh, who were really smart and who would use this equipment quite profitably. Uh, and the, the counterfactual uh, comes into play here if you think about, well, what if there was no REA? What if half the farms didn't get electricity yeah. by wire? Well, a good chunk of them may have generated the electricity mm -hmm. for themselves using what today we call distributed generation. Mm -hmm. Okay, and uh, one of the reasons I like this counterfactual is because it has some policy implications. Um, in Africa, for example, and other parts of the world, there are about a billion people in the world today who do not have access to electricity. Mm -hmm. Most of these people are, are rural. And there are organizations throughout the world that are trying to get these people electrified. The standard approach, like through the World Bank, is to finance distribution lines going from centralized power plants to mm -hmm. these currently unserved. Well, let's go back to the 1920s and 30s in the United States and look at a model that was not adopted widely, namely, mm -hmm self-generation, mm -hmm. distributed generation. We have technologies 100 years later that are a lot more efficient. Uh, you can have, uh, sure, you can have internal combustion engines generating electricity for a small community, uh, but you can also have solar cells, you can have wind turbines, uh, and indeed, there are people and there are organizations that are developing yeah. these distributed generation um, systems for smaller computers, I, uh, communities rather. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not original yeah. uh, with me at all. But it suggests that there was another way for farmers to get electricity, one that um, was used by about 4% of farmers okay. by around 1930. Uh, and that is a model that, that per, per, could have, could have persisted. I, when I was reading that section of your book, there's a, a farm down in Giles County near near us here. Mm -hmm. um, the farm's owned by the park system, and you can walk around there. I can't remember the name of it. I was going to say McDonald's, but I think that's an old song about a yeah, farm I, I think, once yeah. heard. There's an old uh, farm named <laughs> McDonald's. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I, down there, I, I'm pretty sure what I've seen is there's a mill on the property, mm -hmm. And the mill was probably originally used as a grist mill, would mm -hmm. be my guess. Right. But at some point, it was converted. The, the mill equipment was converted yes. to, to drive electricity for the farm. And so right. I've actually checked it out. And Good for you. Yeah, it's, been, it's a very interesting. Indeed, so, even, yeah. even Charles Seitz at mm -hmm. Virginia Tech in the 20s published a book, a booklet for farmers through, I think it was the Department of Agriculture, how to use water flowing yeah. in rivers or streams on your farm to generate electricity. Yeah. Okay, so it wasn't just these Delco light uh, generators. You had water 
turbines, mm -hmm. generators. You had windmills producing mm -hmm. electricity. Yeah. Um, uh, again, farmers who really wanted electricity and who had the money, of course, yeah. to, to buy this equipment uh, could actually get it. And one could imagine that in the 1940s or so, with new materials, that new metals, for example, that were developed yeah. during World War II, um, one could have produced these uh, self-generating systems that were more reliable, more efficient, lower cost, so that, yeah, you know, yeah. if you don't have wires coming to your house, doesn't matter. You can produce the electricity yourself. So thank you for writing this book, uh, shaming all of us. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, as a many historians of technology, myself included in the classroom, mm. you know, many of us historians of technology, like myself included, are mm. kind of big government libs. You know, we love stories of the mm. efficacy of government mm. and regulation. I think for a long time, uh, people have used the REA story as a, a story of mm -hmm. effectiveness. And like yes. you said, there, you know, there's some truth to what the REA accomplished mm -hmm. for sure. Right. But I do think, you know, you've kind of poked a lot of holes in the standard narrative that's been around around these things for a yeah. long time. And I think indeed, uh, I am, as a, as a sub-theme, I am, I am taking a shot at some of the standard views of the relationships between federal government and private companies, mm -hmm. indeed. Uh, and I think that still has uh, relevance today in, in, uh, in efforts to bring broadband internet to mm -hmm. rural areas. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some people who are saying, what we need is another REA effort. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I might suggest is that, uh, no, that, you know, that, that, that argument depends on accepting the standard view yeah. of the REA. And I think what we're seeing these days is a much more nuanced approach toward broadband mm -hmm. that brings in private companies, although with large subsidies from yeah. federal government. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not just the REA's successor, the Rural Utilities Service, uh, but a lot of private companies mm -hmm. that are bringing uh, broadband service to, uh, to rural areas in a way that we saw electrification occur mm -hmm. in rural America as well. What's next for you? Do you have a next project or what are you thinking, man? <laughs> yeah, man, <laughs> man, you know, I'm so old. I know that, you know, we, we talked about, we talked that way, man. You know, I have some really groovy projects. You mind. do? <laughs> I have one groovy project I'm, yeah. I'm working on. Uh, so as, as you know, uh, my, primary hobby yeah. is that I am a, uh, that I do work in emergency medicine. I'm, a, uh -huh. I'm an emergency medical technician for yeah. almost 35 years. And I love learning about and, and helping people who are in medical emergencies. Yeah. Uh, I'm a CPR instructor um, and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I, I'm, I'm working on how the utility industry in starting in the 1880s and 90s, early in the industry's uh, history, uh, really got involved in trying to advance resuscitation techniques for hmm. people who were electrocuted and who stopped breathing. Okay, wow. and that picks up on actually a, a couple of hundred years of resuscitation uh, history, huh. uh, history of resuscitation efforts. But it really got going 
uh, in the 1890s, early 20th century. Yeah. So I've been uh, reading and, and writing drafts of stuff on how yeah. the utility industry was helping others develop these resuscitation techniques. And that just as a quick yeah, yeah. Uh, fun thing, in the 1920s, uh, New York Edison Company did work with several organizations, including Johns Hopkins uh, School of Medicine and Public Health, uh, where an engineer started working on uh, how to stimulate the heart mm -hmm. after it was stopped, in many cases due to an electrical shock. Uh, and that guy started work on external defibrillation. Wow. Uh, and even C what we call CPR, external yeah. uh, uh, external compressions. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is stuff that that's great. I, I teach in the, well, that's cool. in the I classroom. Mean, I actually think we need a lot more history on uh, emergency medical response in general. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of understudied mm -hmm. area. And for instance, you know, I've written about automobile accidents mm -hmm. and stuff. Right. And when you look at the curbs of those falling, um, uh, I think a big portion of those, the, the continued f falling of deaths per vehicles miles driven for a long time was mm -hmm. driven by improved emergency medical response. Mm. And we just don't have that history yet. Yeah, we don't. There, there's yeah. not, I've looked into this, there's not much work on the history of it. And it, it's just a fun way of combining my interests yeah. in emergency medicine and electricity. It's yeah. a shocking. Shocking God. discovery of. I know we we're going to get at least no, one pun in and here, and that's not even a good one. My goodness, that's a terrible Richard, pun. Richard, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Today. It's always a pleasure, Link. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. You can reach us with questions comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or by following me on Twitter at STS underscore news or on YouTube at people's things. Our podcast is distributed by the New Books Network, the leading platform for academic podcasts so that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Peoples and things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother, Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy, Juliana Castro, for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Joe Fort is the producer for the podcast, and Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. This podcast and other Peoples and Things programming are produced in affiliation with Virginia Tech Publishing and supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. For the entire Peoples and Things team, I am Lee Vinsel. And most importantly, I want to thank you for listening. Thanks.